Welcome to Pastor Casey's Sermon at Bangor Community Church's Sunday Service. Casey is the Village Missions Pastor at Bangor Community Church here in Bangor, California. Village Missions serves Christ by sending missionary pastors to rural communities all over North America. Casey's joined by his wife, Hope, and their eight children. Let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. All right, well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Uh, And as always, if you do not have a Bible or if you are in need of a Bible, uh, please come see me after the service and I will work to get one into your hands. Uh, So we are in Luke 22. We are in the last hours of Jesus's last day before being crucified. (coughs) Jesus and his disciples, the the 12 to be specific, they are uh, eating the Passover meal in in a room above the home of one of Jesus's followers. Uh, This section, this uh, section of teaching by Jesus is called the upper room discourse. It's the the teaching that takes place in that upper room of that home on that night. Uh, Luke doesn't share as much on that, the discourse as some of the other gospels, um, especially John. If you want to read um, a fuller account of the the different things that Jesus talks about in that upper room, uh, John's a great gospel to go to. But there is a lot here that Luke includes, and there's a lot to unpack. Uh, Last week, we saw Jesus institute the the first communion, show that he is the final and the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. And because of the importance of this section of teaching, uh, Jesus made sure that they would not be interrupted during this time. Jesus knew that that Judas was planning on betraying him and, and that he had, in fact, already made plans with the chief priests. Uh, Judas was planning on turning Jesus over to the religious leaders when there was no one around, when the crowds of people were not around to cause a stir, to potentially fight back, uh, to do something uh, in in terms of revenge against the religious leaders. And so that Passover meal would have been that perfect time. It was an intimate, private time. Nobody else was around. Uh, So that would have been a perfect strategic time. But Jesus made sure that this wouldn't happen. He had Peter and John make the plans and preparations in secret. And so that before they arrived there, no one else knew that they were going to be there. Jesus had much too, uh, uh, much too important of things to do, to teach, uh, to say, to be interrupted that evening. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and read this morning's passage. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 38. Uh, As always, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. I encourage you to grab your preferred translations and follow along as we read the Word of God. Luke, Luke 22, 24 through 38, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke records the following words of Jesus. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the king of the Gentiles exercises lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? is Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Thus says the holy word of God. So the last thing we saw Jesus say last week uh, in the section right before this is that one of the 12, one of those that were there with him, one of them would betray him. The text says that the disciples began to question one another which one it would be. Now, Jesus already knew, and he could have identified Judas. He could have just named him right then and there. But he said, one of you 12 is going to betray me. And so they started talking about that. They started questioning. They started uh, reflecting as we looked at And I believe that that discussion, that questioning or whatever, directly led to what we, or or caused what we see this first part of the text this morning. The disciples started arguing at some point that evening over who was the greatest. Uh, Again, I I believe this stems directly from, well, who's going to betray Jesus? It, it, It can't be me. It's probably him. And you can, you can picture the ridiculousness of this because we partake in this ridiculousness today so often. Well, I did this, so I'm greater. Yeah, well, I led more people to Christ, so I'm greater. I gave more money, so I'm greater. I baptized more people, so I'm greater. I led worship or served in this capacity, so I'm greater. So on and so forth. And it's, it's amazing how, how quickly we fall back on our base human nature. Uh, you know, God has, has changed us as Christians. He's changed us from the inside out. He's given us a new heart. But that sin nature is still there until we go to, to meet him, to be, stand in front of him. This is not a new argument between these guys. It's happened at least twice before that we have recorded in Luke's gospel, uh, back in chapters 9 and 10. And, and we do the same thing. We go back time and time again, the same sins, the same temptations, the same weaknesses come back to haunt us time and time again. If we have conflict with someone, we can see throughout our life, we often keep coming back to that same conflict. Once we have a conflict with somebody, it's hard to truly get fully past that conflict because while you may feel and the other person may also genuinely believe that it is all both behind you, sometimes one of the people will say something that just strikes a match and flares it right back up, showing that we haven't truly gotten past it like we think we did or like we want to. That's what we're seeing in these disciples with this argument right here. 
They've had this argument. Jesus has settled this argument many times. They've gotten past it. They've, they know the truth. They know what they're supposed to be, be doing, thinking, saying, feeling. They know it. But then something sparks a flash. One of you is going to betray me. Well, it's obviously got to be Peter. Satan called him the devil the other day. Well, it's got to be uh, John. You know, they call him the son of thunder. He's hot-headed. He's whatever. You know, these things flare up seemingly out of nowhere. And so we have to, we have to be, be careful with that. Uh, this is, again, natural human nature, sinful attitudes uh, that, that is flaring up in these disciples, striving to be seen and known as the greatest, that, that I am better than who, whoever or everyone for that matter. And, and that Jesus is, he rebukes that attitude, of course. It's not the first time he's rebuked it. This is not new information. Most of what we, we see in the teachings of Jesus is not new information if we truly look at it. Jesus tells him, he goes, this is how the world thinks. This is how the world acts. This is unbelievers and the unregenerate. This is the unchanged. This is how worldly kings act and live. I'm better than everyone, so they must serve me. They sit on their throne. They, they make everyone do everything for them. And then... Get this, they act like they're doing it for the benefit of the people that are serving them. Doesn't sound like a timeless truth at all, does it? And of course, we, we know, because Jesus has, has told in a variety of ways, those that act that way, those that live that way, their reward is here and now. Don't be like them. Don't, don't be wrong in the, in the way that, that they are wrong. Don't settle for for earthly temporary rewards. Don't act spoiled or entitled. Don't act better than. Is Jesus acting that way? He says, yes, the world looks at it. The one who is being served is the greatest. That's the way the world looks at it. Is Jesus acting that way? The Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ, God in the flesh, is he sitting back and making others serve him? showing that he is the greatest. If anybody had the right in human history, it would be him. And so if he's not acting this way, why should the disciples? If he's not acting that way, why should we? Instead, act and lead, lead and serve with humility, with true humbleness. Be the one who serves, who leads by serving. Jesus continues, he says, don't worry, I do see you. I see your faith. I see your service. I see your loyalty. It doesn't go unseen. And though you may not see it here and now, you may not get the earthly rewards or benefits. I see you and I have rewards waiting for you in heaven as you will serve in the kingdom of God. You will be eating and drinking and sitting at the, the, the wedding feast of the king You'll be sitting and eating and feasting at the Lord's Supper and you will have authority and responsibilities then serving in that kingdom. You will have your reward. Jesus then turns to Peter and he, he says his name twice. Simon, Simon. This, this emphasizes the importance of what he's about to say. We see throughout the, the Gospels when Jesus repeats something like that. Truly I say, verily, verily, truthfully, 
when he repeats something, it, it emphasizes the importance of what he's saying. It says, Simon, Simon. So Jesus says that Satan has been asking. He's been demanding to have you. He's been wanting to take you, to sift you from the wheat. There's two, two things here. Well, a couple of things, actually. Crystal clear illusion. We look at this and go back to Job 1, right? Satan going and he's talking to God and he says, no, I want that guy. He's not going to serve you. He's not going to stay loyal to you. Take away all the blessings you're giving him and he's going to turn his back on you faster than anything. Give him to me. Satan wanted to have Job. And again, Satan has to ask. He has to demand, but he cannot just do or take. He has no power except what God allows or grants. And so he's saying here, I want them. Give me the disciples. Because the word Jesus uses here when he says you is in the plural. Satan demanded to have you. He's talking plural. Not to make light of it, but how we would understand it. Jesus said, Satan demanded to have y'all. Or you all. He wasn't talking individually about Satan demanding to have Peter. He's talking about all of the disciples. But Jesus is talking specifically to Peter in this context. And especially we get further along in verse 33. And he says, Jesus, he prayed for for them, prayed for the disciples that their faith would not fail. But you, that you would learn from your failings. You would use those when you turn back again to encourage and to build up your brothers. That's where he turns. He's speaking directly to Peter right there. Jesus has a hold of Peter. Those who he has a hold of, those who are in Christ, those who are with him will never be taken away from him. We'll never be without him. We'll never lose him. We will see over the course of this chapter that Peter will fail. That he will sin. He will deny Jesus three times as Jesus is going to tell him in a moment. That's going to happen. But Jesus says, once you have turned again, once you have repented, once you have turned back from your sin, turned back to following me, Use that. Don't let that only be a dark spot in your history. But use that dark spot. Use that redemption. Use that repentance. Use all of that to strengthen and to build up your fellow believers. Use it to teach and to enrich each other's faith and walk. Use it to encourage and to edify your brothers. Let good come from it. Simon Peter was was hearing what Jesus said and was probably still thinking about Jesus saying that one of them would betray them. Jesus hasn't specified the way that Peter would fall yet. uh, He's saying when you fall and you turn back, then use it for good. And so Peter's thinking, well, you just said one of us is going to betray you. That's what you must be referring to. Jesus, I will follow you to prison or to death, no matter what, no matter where, No matter what the cost, I will follow. I'm committed. I'm loyal. I will never betray you. That's the context of his response there. Jesus tells him, he's he's telling Peter, I know who you are. I know what you're going to do. I know that you will fail. I know that you will sin. I know when, I know where, and I know how. None of it is, is a surprise. And that's important for us to remember. Jesus already knows. This is, does not excuse our sin, does not absolve us from the responsibility of our sin. We should be worried about our sin. We should feel bad about it. We should feel convicted of it. And we should work to change it. 
our sin is a big deal. And it is, as we focused on last week, that our sin is what nailed Jesus to the cross. But we also remember what Jesus says in Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sin does not take Jesus by surprise. It does not change his mind. It is finished and it is already forgiven. Again, that does not excuse our responsibility, but it's important to remember that Jesus has already dealt with it. He knew what we would do. He knew what our sin was going to be. He knew when. He knew how often. He knew all of it. And he still chose to go to the cross for the forgiveness of those sins. Jesus tells Peter, he says, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows, before the morning comes, before the sun rises, before the rooster crows three times, or before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You will deny that you know me. Jesus returns to talking to the whole group of the disciples. He looks around and he reminds them of, of some of the times that, that Jesus has sent them out. He sent them out to spread the word, to share about Jesus. Uh, what most prominently back in Luke chapter 10, he sent them out to, to, the, to the neighboring towns and villages to prepare the way for Jesus to come through. And he asked them, when I sent you out, I told you to go without money, we'll go without knapsack, to go without an extra pair of sandals, to go without an extra cloak. I told you to go out. Did you lack anything? You can kind of hear their tentative no waiting for that other shoe to drop at least that's how i picture it jesus tells them it's not going to be that easy anymore you're going to have to be prepared for what is to come the individual he items that he mentions here are are principles and examples they're not the literal items themselves uh, we'll see this play out later on in the garden uh, as jesus is being rested He's not telling them to literally carry swords because he tells Peter after he chops off the guard's ear, no, no more of that. Put that away. So he's, he's, he's talking about these items as, as representative of the disciples being prepared, of them being aware of the obstacles and dangers that are going to come. It is so that the disciples will look ahead, that they will not be taken by surprise. Again, none of it's a surprise to Jesus. And he's trying to warn his friends. They are not only to be harmless as doves, but remember to be as wise as serpents. They're going to get, things are going to get tough, no doubt. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to them. It's not going to be as easy as it was. People are turning against. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be danger. There's going to be obstacles. Make sure you are prepared when you go out. And then Jesus tells them the reason for that change says, I will and I must fulfill what it says in Isaiah 53, 12, that he will be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was incarnated. He was God made flesh in part so that he could identify with sinners. That would be maybe the hardest thing that he would have to do because he, he didn't have sin. He was not a sinner. So to identify with sinners, can't even begin to imagine what that would end up looking like. He hung on that cross between two criminals, two transgressors. And when he gave his spirit up, the father looked down and counted him as a sinner. 
pour his wrath out on Jesus. Jesus identified with us so that he could absorb that wrath that was justly meant for us. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't have sin that needed to be dealt with. He didn't have sin that needed to be punished. He didn't have sin that needed to be forgiven. But to forgive us, to deal with our sin, to to make it so that our relationship with God was reconciled. He was counted as a sinner on that cross, took our punishment. Now, the disciples continue to be who they are and help us to not feel as bad as we could otherwise feel. And they entirely miss the point of what Jesus is saying. They tell him, look, look, we not only have a sword, but we have two swords. And they're, of course, referencing the figurative statement Jesus just made a moment ago about selling their cloaks to buy a sword. But I believe they're also hearing what Jesus is saying and saying, we're not going to let them number you with transgressors. We will stop them by force if needed. We have our swords. We will fight for you. Jesus says, it is enough. He's not saying that those two swords are enough, that their faith or dedication is enough, uh, that their attitude's enough. Instead of what he's saying is enough of that sort of talk. As, as I read through the, the commentaries, they, one of them says, colloquially, this would be uh, today, Jesus saying, I give up. I'm not having this conversation with you anymore. You're not getting it. We're done. Shutting down the conversation. That's how much the disciples were missing the point of what Jesus was saying. I didn't want to spend his time this last night, these last hours, arguing with his closest friends. He didn't want to spend this, this special time trying to explain and convince them of something that they wouldn't understand. Instead, Jesus was going to focus on going to pray, which is what we're going to see next week. Now, I want to, I want to go back for a moment, back to Jesus quoting Isaiah 53, 12, saying that he would fulfill what that scripture says, that he would be, he would be numbered with the transgressors. And, and that statement is followed by two more statements in Isaiah as well, that I think make a complete picture, a fuller uh, idea of why Jesus is here. It says first that he bore the sins of many and second that he makes intercession for transgressors. So that's three things we see right there that Jesus came to do and that he did do. He came to identify with sinners of which we should all be saying of whom I am the chief of all. He atoned for the sins of all who believed. We looked at this last week that his blood shed, his body broken, He did that to deliver us from the bondage of sin, the the slavery to sin, and to purchase forgiveness of those sins. And that he would be our intercessor. He prayed for Peter, prayed for the disciples, his followers. He prayed that that Satan would not get a hold of them. He prayed that, that all of the followers that the Father gave him would stay with him. He bridges that gap between us and God. As Paul writes, there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to be that, that gap, to bridge that gap between us. We no longer need animal sacrifices. We no longer need priests to intercede on our behalf. 
Because Jesus already did it. He is a priest for all time. He already paid the sacrifice. He reconciled our broken relationship between us and God. And and as we looked at last week, that's what we remember when we celebrate communion. That's what communion represents. Jesus, God become man. He came to this world as a human baby, numbered with transgressors, willingly gave himself up to be crucified, shed his perfect and sinless blood, broke sin's grip on us, died, was buried, was risen from the dead, defeated death through that resurrection. The new covenant that all who believe by the grace of God alone, through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the way, the truth, the life, faith in him alone. To them belong the new covenant. To those who believe he gave new hearts, he gave forgiveness, he gave eternal life in the kingdom of God, adopted as sons of God, sealed by the Holy Spirit, co-heirs to the kingdom with Christ. Communion is done in remembrance, in remembrance of all of that. It is not salvific. It is not magic. It does not impart righteousness, forgiveness, or salvation. It is done for believers, for Christians, to remember what Jesus did for us, to remember what it cost God to restore that relationship with us, to show the perfect love that he has, to remember how big of a deal sin is. So in that vein, as we, we're going to come together, we're going to celebrate communion, we're going to celebrate, we're going to remember, we're going to, we're going to do this. And we do ask, if you're not a believer, I say this every month, if you're not a follower of Christ, because of the importance of this, please don't partake. Pass the elements along. And if you want to change that, if you want to believe, if you have questions, then we would love to talk to you after the service uh, and pray with you. But this is an act of remembrance for those who have received the forgiveness that Christ has purchased on the cross. Paul writes in in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 23 through 26, says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. Do that. Sorry, excuse me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ask Mike and Frank to come on up. What we're going to do is we're going to pass out the cups that contain both the wafers and the juice. Uh, representing the wafers representing Christ's body, the juice representing Christ's blood. After they're passed out, one of them will pray over the wafer. We'll take that together as a church family, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Then the other will pray for the juice and we'll do the same with that. So let us come together and pray and celebrate communion together. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bangor Community Church. Visit us online at facebook.com slash Bangor Community Church CA, all one word. 
or Pastor Casey at Casey Holenchek. That's C-A-S-E-Y-H-O-L-E-N-C-I-K.com. Thank you again for listening and joining us on our journey through God's Word. If you've listened this far and believe in our ministry or us as a family, please consider partnering with us. We would be honored to know that you are praying with and for us. If you feel compelled to give through financial support, information on how and where to give can be found at caseyholanchik.com slash giving. Thank you and God bless.